Well, thank you, Casey. Good morning again. Take your Bibles, please, and turn. We won't be in the Gospel of John this morning. We will instead be in 1 Timothy chapter 1 for this week only. And there's a method to my madness. Uh, we will uh, be back in John, Lord willing, John chapter 5 next week. But I want to look at an issue this morning that's pertinent to what we've been studying, and that is the law of God. Because in the context of Jesus dealing with the Jews, with the teachers, the scribes, the Pharisees, you're going to hear about, a lot about the law of God. And if you're, we're not careful, you're going to get the impression in the next few weeks or months that the law of God is something that is negative. It's just legalism. And I know even in our sort of reformed circles, you know, any mention of the law of God can now be sort of dismissed and say, well, that's just legalism under grace, under law. And it's true, we're under grace and under, under the law, but the law is very important. And Jesus uh, is going to lay this out for us, but I want to lay it out from 1 Timothy this morning and, and uh, just ask the question of what use is the law of God? Because behind the gospel, and I hope you're going to help us see this this morning, behind the gospel is God's law. And behind God's law is God's character. And so, again, I think in today's church, we can very easily dismiss this because we don't want to be legalists. And indeed, we don't want to be legalists, but we don't want to dismiss a big part of the Bible. And so this morning, I want us to look, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 8 through 11. Now, we looked at this, we examined this a little bit, uh, maybe three or four years ago, and we did, I did a 15-part series on the Ten Commandments, but I think it's worth revisiting just given the context. And so I'm going to read uh, in, in uh, 1 Timothy verses 3 uh, through 11, but only going to deal with 8 through 11. So let us hear now the word of the Lord as inspired by His Spirit, where Paul writes, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now that we know, now we know, and here's we, here's we're going to uh, spend our time this morning. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's kind of the burden this morning we're gonna, uh, of the sermon. One uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And this is God's inspired, inerrant word. May he bind it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, this morning... We need your grace to see great things from your law, or not to despise any portion of Scripture, but to see what Paul says here, that the law is good when it is used lawfully. And God, I pray that we would be about that today, that you would guard me and guard us from error, Lord. And I pray you'd open our eyes to so the beautiful things that 
or in your law, Lord, that make, that fill out the content of the gospel, that make the gospel sweet. Where the law says do, that the gospel says done, and we would be able to revel in that today after we uh, hear this. And God, if there be those who do not know you, I pray that, Lord, as the old Puritans love to say, the gospel would, the, rather the law would break them and the gospel would heal them. And you'd work in their hearts to bring about repentance and faith this morning. Lord, we thank you for loving us and thank you for the privilege you have of, have of looking into these things in which angels long to look. May you be glorified in this hour. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So what would happen if you took a hammer and tried to use it to do something that called for a screwdriver? Now, some of you in your anger may have tried to do this. I probably tried to do this at some point or in my clumsiness around the house, use, try to drive in a screw. And what if you bathed your dog and instead of drying him off with a towel, you used a microwave? Now, my dog will fit in the microwave and that's a good thing. What would happen? Well, we know what would happen. We don't want to imagine what would happen, do we? What if you were a football player, you were a wide receiver, and you played for the Tennessee Volunteers? Had a big day yesterday. I'm happy about that <laughs> for them, for those Tennessee people. But what if you tried to catch a pass with a baseball glove? Your coach would have a conniption, first of all, and a lot of people would laugh, but what would happen? Or if you tried to pour your, you came here this morning, and my son Jake, who always wears a hat, tried to drink co coffee out of his baseball cap. It wouldn't work, would it? Not too well, anyway. Or if you tried a tee shot off the, you know, 500-yard tee shot in golf, you tried to do it with a piece of PVC pipe instead of your trusty Callaway driver. Sometimes I feel like I hit my tee shots with a piece of PVC pipe. They probably look like it. But what would happen? Well, you wouldn't get the desired outcome, would you? If you want to drive a nail, you use a hammer, right? You don't use a screwdriver. If you want to dry your dog off, please don't put it in the microwave, even though you get aggravated at him sometimes. And the point, my point I'm making is you use fit things for fit jobs, right? And if you don't, well, the outcome is predictable. Well, let's, let's apply this to the law of God. What if Christ Fellowship's elders, what if we, I announced this morning, after welcoming you, that we are going to pass down a fiat that members could not take more than 1,999 steps today or you would be church disciplined after the 2,000 steps because that would put you on a journey and we know that we can't go on a journey on the Lord's Day. That is a sin. Refer to last week's sermon. We talked about this a bit last sermon. What if we said that? said, well, you can't do this because one more step would put you in a position of sin. Or what if we said, don't bring your Bibles to church because that would be carrying a load. And we know that carrying a load is work on the Lord's Day and you must not work on the Lord's Day. We'd say, well, I'll use my phone. Well, you can't carry your phone either. It's the same thing, right? Or if we added sub-paragraphs to the Constitution that prescribed disciplinary action for those found guilty of other activities on the Lord's Day, such as carrying a pen. Well, you guys would be in trouble. And I love it you bring pens, by the way. So we're not forbidding pens. But what if we did and said it's a sin, it's taboo? Or maybe we said you can't help those who have life-threatening maladies. That can wait till Monday. I'm going to do that today. They'll just wait. They can breathe for another 24 hours, right? Or looking in the mirror, spitting. Remember last week, removing clothes. You get the picture. I mean, such boorish legalism. That seems 
silly, I realize, but such boorish legalism would make a congregation and its elders miserable, utterly miserable, right? And would likely lead to an elder election. It might be our last Sunday here after we made these announcements, right? And I don't blame you under such boorish legalism, unbiblical legalism. And of course, these were some of the laws, weren't they? That that the Pharisees and the scribes added to the Torah. And I think it's between six and 700 of these extra biblical laws, as again, we saw last week. These Jews who lived in the Roman Empire during the New Testament times, and all because they misunderstood the law. They were not using it lawfully. They were putting their dog in a microwave, in essence. <laughs> and the outcome of their lives was utter misery. Some of you grew up in this. I grew up in a church that was kind of a, it wasn't really a balance between, there was gospel, for sure, praise God for that. I was saved in that church. Shows that none of us have perfect churches. There's a lot of legalism. My mother, I remember my mother would live on a farm and our driveway was about, it was a dirt road and it was about, I don't know, 500 yards long. You could see a car coming from a long way off and it was, it was gravel, you could hear them coming. And so when our pastor who would visit us, she would, if she had on pants, she would scramble to get a dress on before he got there because he believed it was a sin to wear a dress. I mean, to wear pants, rather, not to wear a dress. And so, uh, we're not going to do that here at Christ Fellowship, just so you know. This is not an announcement or a segue into that of some kind. But this is what happens when we misunderstand the law and use it unlawfully. Now, the context here, let's get our bearings here, get the picture a bit here in First Timothy. We've jumped into this. We'll jump out and back to John Lord really next week. But these false teachers have wormed their way into the church in Ephesus, where Paul's young protege, Timothy, has been called a pastor. And you guys going to ministry and young pastors, boy, give yourself to First and Second Timothy. There's so much. I mean, I've been in it, at it a long time, and yet I love First and Second Timothy, and I'm convicted and instructed every time I read it. But Timothy's been called a pastor of this fledgling church, and false teachers have worn their way in, and the exact nature of the teaching is, is unclear, but it's a misuse of the law of some kind. And again, we, uh, some of us who've been in church a long time know about this. The teachers are promoting, at, at bare minimum, speculation, guesses about what is, is true, and arrogance and greed. Not the kind of teachers and teaching we would welcome through the doors, I hope, here at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. So I've got three main points about this one to help us get at this truth of how they're using it unlawfully and how we should use it and why maybe the Pharisees are so angry at Jesus, but at the same time why Jesus will not relent, why Jesus doesn't compromise, say, you know, you're right, I'm being legalistic here, I'm, 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 I'm going to knuckle under to you. So we'll get, get a picture of why, why the law. Well, my first point is very simple, and most of you could probably outline this, the law is good. God's law, verse 8 tells us, is good. Now, he's speaking here of the Mosaic law, the moral law of God, I think is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And all we've been over this, the, the civil ceremonial and moral uh, use of God's law, and of course, the first two have been fulfilled in Christ, the moral law remains as summarized in the Ten Commandments as the stipulations for the covenant that God made with Old, Old Testament Israel. So the law of God is good, he says, but there's a caveat, when one uses it lawfully, and he's going to show us how to use it lawfully. I mean, unlawful ways that 
we, we think of unlawful ways of God, the, the law of God is used in churches, or we can say how not to use the law of God. Let's put it that way. Here's how not to use the law of God. Like trying to use a PVC pipe to, to hit your ball off the driver. One, we don't use it as a means of salvation. And this was kind of the, a bit of the sin of the Pharisees, though I think they would have denied it. This is legalism. We use the law as a stairway to heaven. We prop it up against the, 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 the walls of heaven and we try to climb up through our works. And the Pharisees, again, they were somewhat guilty of this. A second way we misuse the law is a, as a means, and this is, boy, this, this one hits a lot closer to home, I think. A means of assessing the righteousness of others. And this was the sin of the Pharisees. They were professionals. They were they were like Babe Ruth when it came to assessing the righteousness of others, or so they thought. They were Hall of Famers. This is what they did. This is why they rode Jesus so hard. It's self-righteousness. And they're professionals of this. So we, we do this, don't we? When we sit back thinking, I hope so-and-so is listening to this sermon because they really need it. Now, if someone needs to be saved and we're praying for their salvation, that, that's one thing. But, you know, we can sit in church and think, man, so-and-so struggles with this. I've seen it in their lives. I may not even know their struggle. But I hope they're listening today. The preacher's going to let them have it. When in reality, the Word of God should kind of let us have it every day, right? Every, every Sunday, every time we read it. I know sometimes I'm just tempted to close the Bible and go, boy, I don't know. <laughs> Lord, you've got to give me grace, and that's good. That's one of the uses of the law we're going to see in a few minutes. A third way we misuse the law is we use it as a guide to asceticism. And what I mean by asceticism, and we see this all through the New Testament in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but it's obtaining from physical pleasures to achieve spiritual goals. Practical, what I like to call, is a, or abstaining rather, from, from spiritual pleasures, or, or physical pleasures to obtain spiritual goals. I call this, I'd call this a practical monasticism. We're monastics. We're going to abstain. We're defined by what we don't do, by what we abstain from. And again, I grew up with some of this. We're, you know, we don't, don't dance and we don't drink and, you know, we don't smoke and we don't do this. And we had a church covenant hung on our wall in my childhood church and it had all the things we don't do. A lot of things we don't do. And I heard it preached a lot, and you may have too. And of course, the Bible, there are things in Scripture that we don't do, right? But when we build, you know, we build our church around that, we just build it on a house of cards and make Pharisees at best. So it's kind of a guide to asceticism. And the, the false teaching that's come to the church of Ephesus apparently include, includes, I think, a healthy dose of asceticism. And we're always tempted by, by this because it seems so holy and it looks so holy. I mean, if I come to church and you can leave saying, you know, that Robinson, he's a godly seeming chap, then, you know, I can feel pretty good about that, right? Because I look on the outside, I look very holy because I'm an ascetic. And you, you may have seen this in church people, you know, they, boy, they looked really godly. But you can't judge a book by its cover, can you? Not at all, and I hope we, we learn that. I mean, that's one thing. I, had, I have a friend who's really quiet. And I told him one time, he's a, he's a pastor in, in Oklahoma, and I said, I wish I could be like you. I talk too much. Later, I wrote a book about it. I feel so guilty about it, you know. <laughs> and so I said, I wish I could be like you. I wish I could be quiet, because that's just really godly. And he said, you have no idea what ungodly thoughts, just a hornet's nest of evil that comes out of my heart and what I struggle with. So I thought, huh, made me feel a lot better about myself, <laughs> or sinfully so, right? But he said, don't be fooled by asceticism. And he's right. 
very godly pastor is right. We also use it or attempted to use it as a political tool. This is what we do in America. We're, uh, you know, last 50 years or so, we've taken the Ten Commandments out of school and we think we'll be just fine if we can only get them back on the wall in school. Well, I'm not necessarily against that. However, I don't think that's going to lead to revival unless it's coupled with the gospel, right? I mean, I'm for getting the gospel in the schools and maybe if the Ten Commandments causes people to despair and drives them the gospel, great, but usually that's not how it's used, is it? It's kind of a political tool. And I think we, we, can, we can be, if we're not careful, we can misuse it that way. And finally, we can use it, uh, we, we cannot use it at all and say that it is passe, it has nothing to say to us today. We are under grace, under the law, and we, it's all fulfilled in Christ. That's antinomianism. So that's a big word. Well, anti, against, nomos, in the Greek, means law, so it's against the law. And there's anti, we're against the law. We, there's no enduring significance to the law of God in the life of the believer. And that's antinomianism. So I think our struggle is always throughout our lives, is a, it's a struggle of two ditches, avoiding the ditch of antinomianism on the one hand and legalism on the other. I know I, I do. I look at that. I look at the freedoms I have in Christ, and I've got to be careful not to misuse those. But then I go, I swerve all the way back to the other ditch of legalism trying to earn my salvation. I'm convinced that we spend a lot of our lives and our sanctification trying to stay between those two ditches, and we, we divert, most of us do, into those at, at points and hold other people accountable for either legalism or say, oh, he's just a fuddy-duddy. He's free in Christ to do whatever. And we have to be careful with both of those, right? But the law of God is, is, the law of God is, is good, used lawfully. We misuse it, but that doesn't mean it's, uh, that it is passe, that we don't need it. Because all Paul says here, it is good. And the law is kind of like a multi-use item. It's kind of like a Swiss army knife. Got a lot of blades, a lot of uses in there. And here's three helpful uses of the law. Three really, uh, I hope, help us to see why it's good. One, it's a map. The law of God is a map. And these are three M's if you're into alliteration. In other words, it guides our conduct. When Christians are set free to live in a way that is pleasing to God, we are free not from the law, but free to keep the law on some level, to delight in it, to keep it. The Ten Commandments show us how to live in a way that pleases God. That's how we know what pleases God, right? Because that's His law, which reflects His holy character. And so this is the way we live to please Him. And of course, only regenerate hearts are going to desire that. I think that's why in Romans 7, Paul's speaking as uh, you know, his, his post-conversion experience. Right? He's, he wants to keep the law, but there's another, uh, there's another factor at work in him that's keeping him from doing that which he wants to do. We don't delight in the law or love the law. We want to keep the law unless our hearts have been changed. And so it's a map, a guide to our conduct. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said the moral law is the copy of God's will. Our spiritual directory, it shows us what sins to avoid, what duties we are to pursue. I mean, it teaches the people of God how to live for the glory of God. So it's a map. Secondly, it's a muzzle. It's a muzzle. It's a map, but it's also a muzzle. In other words, the law of God keeps us from doing wrong. It restrains sin in, in human society. I mean, the Ten Commandments with their, their accusation of guilt and their threat of punishment discourage people from sinning against God, even if they're not written on the walls of our schools anymore. They discourage unrighteous living. And certainly the law does not keep people from sinning entirely. 
That comes only out of a changed heart. And it cannot change, the law cannot change our sinful nature. But to a certain extent, it does serve to restrain sin. How, you ask? Well, it's kind of like a bridle. We live in Kentucky, which is the land of many horses, and so it's also the land of many bridles, right? It's like a bridle that controls an unruly horse. The law causes lawbreakers to dread punishment when they break the law. It shows them the, the obedience they owe God and love that they owe to their neighbor. Because what is the summary of the law? The New Testament tells it. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of the first the, the two tables of the law, Ten Commandments. I mean, you think about this, how it works in our lives. Even as Christians, you may be angry. You may grow angry enough to strangle someone. In fact, you might say, man, I'd just like to strangle her or him. And you've said it. I know you have. I've said it, or at least thought it, right? But you wouldn't. Because what's going to happen if you strangle someone? You'll probably go to jail. If I get arrested, there's, there's a threat, right? There's a threat and there's a punishment for your disobedience. And so the law restrains you. I mean, if you were to murder someone, and sometimes we're murderers in our anger, there's going to be punishment for your sin. There will be consequences but the law keeps you from doing it. You're going to go to prison for a long time or face the, the death penalty and that restrains you. The law of God works this way. I mean, Deuteronomy 28, 20, uh, 28 there's powerful, one of the most powerful chapters of the Old Testament because it sets forth there the blessings for obedience. If you obey the law of God, you're going to be blessed in what you do. And then the, it's the covenant blessings and the covenant cursings. If you disobey the law of God, this is what's going to happen. Of course, it's written to Israel, the old covenant people of God, and he's saying, look, you, if you break with me, it's going to go bad for you. If you obey my law, look what's going to happen. And, and, and those things remain not as a, a means of salvation, and we're not, we're not Old Testament Israel. But where you see Old Testament Israel draw a direct line to the church, and we're the church. And so we're, we, we are to keep God's law as much as possible. Now, we have been changed by the Holy Spirit, by the, the Spirit of God indwelling us now, so we're able on some level to keep the law of God. But it's a map, it's a muzzle, and finally it's a mirror. It exposes our sin. This is why I'm always, I harp on, and I'm going to harp on it again, and again and again and again, I'm sure. And I harp on this for myself. I harp on reading the Word of God every single day. Because you need to stand in front of that mirror and go, okay, who am I? Yes, who am I in Christ? Be reminded of that so you don't despair. But also, what God says about our sin. I mean, if we're outside of Christ, if you're not a believer today, it shows your need for a Savior. It shows that you cannot be good enough or make yourself good enough or, or pile up enough righteousness to make it to heaven, to make yourself good enough for God. What does it take to get into heaven? Absolute perfection. Do you, only the perfect get into heaven? Yes. There's a country song that says, no, no, the, you know, I know that heaven's full of imperfect people. I know what he's saying, but it's really not true. You need the righteousness that comes from outside of you, that comes through Christ to make you perfect, right? And so this shows us our need for a Savior because we, we're lawbreakers. We're not law keepers. I mean, the law is certainly not able to bring full and final salvation. But because it exposes us as lawbreakers, it shows our need for Jesus. We see this in the Old Testament with God's ethnic people, Israel. Their salvation required perfect obedience to the revealed will of God. 
I mean, God cannot even allow one sin into his kingdom, in his presence. He's holy. And I think this is something that I appreciate. R.C. Sproul so much for working the last, you know, before he died, the last 50 years now, Ligonier, for recovering this, this, this doctrine of God's holiness. Because only we understand the holiness of God do we understand how sinful we are and how desperate we are for his grace and his mercy to come and change us and work in our hearts. And that's the only hope we have is his grace and his mercy because we have this mirror. The Old Testament saints were required to keep the God, the covenant of God perfectly, the Ten Commandments, the terms of the covenant, and so are we. And this exposes us, it unmasks us as those who need a Savior, who need righteousness given outside of us. The Latin is extra nos, outside of ourselves, given to us, imputed to us, deposited into our account so that our debts are paid and our righteousness has been given to them and God can look on us and say, he's righteous. Robinson, righteous. Not because of my righteous deeds, because Jesus lived a sinless life and that's given to me. He actively lived a sinless life and passively died on the cross, right? His active and passive obedience, that's what saves you and what saves me and that's our only hope. And this mirror exposes us. This has never changed. It's true for us today. So it's a, a map, it's a muzzle, and it's a mirror. Think about those. Just ponder those things as you read through your Bibles. And it helps us put our Bible together too. But the Israelites could not keep the law. And you cannot keep the law. And I cannot keep the law. That's a problem with legalism, isn't it? it, it doesn't, we, we can't save ourselves. If the Israelites kept God's law perfectly, they'd be saved forever. And so would we, right? But they couldn't. In fact, just 12 chapters after we read the, uh, the, the account of God or of Moses uh, ascending to the top of Sinai and receiving the Ten Commandments, what happens? Just 12 chapters. The law of God forbids idolatry and worshiping idols and fashioning images. And what happens? Well, Moses comes down to find the people of God doing what? Worshiping a golden idol. They said, where is this Moses? It's a little bit of humor in that. This Moses, as for, as, as for this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. So we're going to make, an, we're going to make a calf and we're going to worship. This is your God. It didn't take him long to, to fall into this kind of very crass form of idolatry, did it? Unless we think we are immune to that, look in the Bible and it is a mirror. As Calvin so well put it, the human heart is an idol factory. We're just, we just, we, we make, we um, manufacture idols daily. It can be foolish things. There's things that, I look in my own heart, I see things there that I just, oh man, I don't think I'd want to live without. And I think, that's silly. I mean, things like baseball. Like, I mean, these, these, we're, we're, we're so easily amused and, and drawn in, just like the Israelites, right? And the law, we need the mirror of the law that shows us the ketchup on our chin from the, uh, the hot dog we ate at the bats game tonight. We need that. It shows us how truly sinful we are. But the law doesn't stop there. It actually provokes our sin. It, it, it stirs it up. It's an active agent, an active ingredient it provokes our sin. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He said, he says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Mm. 
When we are outside of Christ, we don't want God telling us what to do. If you're lost today, you don't want God telling you what to do. You don't want anybody telling you what to do. And that's your problem. We're rebels. I was a rebel. I don't want God telling me what to do. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. It's not just teenagers. This is all of us, right? Don't tell me what to do. But the law tells us it's covetousness. You're a coveter. You're covetous. Because when God tells us, don't covet that, we want it all the more. We're, we lust even more for it, don't we? I remember years ago, many years ago, we lived in Louisville. We lived beside the Taylors, Jen and David Taylor. And Jen will remember this. There was a sign in our front yard. A, a, our street was very wide and very, uh, there wasn't a lot of traffic on our street. And there was, a, there was a speed limit sign. And it said 15 miles an hour. And that sign really chapped me. I mean, I don't think I could push my car 15 miles an hour. <laughs> uh, you know, it'd go faster if I put, got out and pushed it. And I realized, this is such an illustration. That sign irks me. Every time I'd mow around, I wanted to take it down, you know, and screw it and just throw it under my house or something. But I realized that's my, I want to be able to drive as uh, whatever I want. This is ridiculous. And, and I hear this all the time, and I say this. Well, somebody will, there'll be a law, there's something. I'll say, well, this is completely ridiculous. And the world says it's about God, does it? says he's completely ridiculous. He just doesn't want us to have any fun. I hear that all the time, doing evangelism. Well, God, he just uh, spoils for you. This is no fun. And yet the law, I mean, at the end of the day, the law is to protect us from ourselves, isn't it? I mean, these are, it's better that we don't commit adultery, for example. It really is better that we don't covet so much that we finally steal this thing that doesn't belong to us, that God has not been pleased to give us. It, 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 I mean, the law of God is good, isn't it? Just on a very, very practical level, it's good because of our hearts. The law provokes sin and where does sin lead? Well, sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. And even worse, I mean, though it places people in death who die under God's curse, who die outside of Christ and spend eternity in hell working off their sins, and it will never happen. That's what hell is. It's a parallel to paradise, isn't it? You spend eternity because that's what your sins deserved, and you will never, ever, ever get out. Ever. Separate from God, eternal punishment, all those things are so much there that the Bible says, and it's, it, it's, it ought to frighten you. And if you're a Christian, it ought to frighten you for those around you, and it, and it does me. I mean, I think about who's on the road to hell, and it's most of the people around us, isn't it? Another sermon for another time. But God didn't give the law to curse his people. He did it so they would run to shelter in Jesus Christ. And so the law humbles us, it terrifies us, it crushes us, it brings us to the brink of despair, but it drives us to Christ. That's why it's good, because it makes you despair of how good you are, where we always think more, much more highly of ourselves than we are, though I wouldn't have said don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. It drives us to Christ. I mean, God's plan all along from before the foundation of the world is to send a Savior, Covenant of grace. He gave the law first, the covenant of works to Adam and Eve. They didn't keep it. They broke it immediately. It showed them they needed an everlasting Savior. It made them long for the coming of, of the Messiah, of Christ. And you see this all through the Old Testament. And of course, Old Testament saints were saved how? By believing in a Messiah to come. We're saved by looking at a Savior who has come. But the law reveals our need for a Savior. So my second main point, the law is good. Secondly, the law, is, the law of God is for sinners. Verses 9 and 10. 
He says, the law is not for the just, but for the disobedient, verse 9. And of course, what is it? There's only disobedient people, right? God only saves sinners. Because there's only sinners. Save for Jesus Christ, the God-man, kept the law perfectly. I mean, if people were perfect, there'd be no need for God's law. Again, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Paul says, it goes on to say in Romans 7. Or says before, he says, if it had not said, you should not covet, I would not have known what it means to covet. If it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. So it's God's grace he's given you the law to show you sin and to show you the consequences of your sin. The law is for the lost. It shows them the need for a savior. It's also for the found. So you can't tune out this sermon just yet. It's for the lost. It's also for the found as a means of sanctification. It points us both to God's righteousness and to our indwelling sin. I mean, think about a garden. My dad was probably the the best known gardener in my whole community growing up and he would supply half our church with watermelons and corn and beans and okra and things like that because we had this massive garden and we, all that would come up and we would take it to church. My dad basically told the people in our church, if you want something, come and get it. But he kept the garden weeded. He was, he was scrupulous about keeping the garden weeded so those fruits and vegetables would grow and so it is with us. We need to remove the weeds of sin and not just cut them off the top. Like, okay, I'm going to do better. I'm not going to get as mad today at the kids as I did yesterday. No, it needs to be pulled out by the root. I remember my dad out there with this hoe. This was way back in the day. We'll pull it out by the root. Pull sin out by the root. We have to do that, right? And the law shows us, shows us how we need that. Why we so desperately need it. Because the weeds, if left unchecked, will eventually ruin the garden. Choke out all the all the fruits and vegetables and lead to death. So it's for the found. They walk through some violations of the second table of the law here, uh, the commandments 5 through 10. He says, for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane. And by this he means people whose, whose lives and lips are sinful all the time. All the time. The filthy talk merely exposes a filthy heart. I mean, Jesus said what? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we say, what's in our heart, that comes out of our mouth, doesn't it? What, what do we talk about? We murder people, Jesus said, in pro, with our profane mouths, not just swearing, although I think that is a sin. But also the way we talk about people so easily, we so easily skewer people. On the way home from church, you know, I don't like that pastor, <laughs> or I don't like so-and-so, or, you know, I don't like this. We, you know, we just, we do this, don't we, because, I mean, we, we see in the law of God our need for continuing obedience to his law and continuing need for grace every day. And what do others think about us based on our deeds and our talk? A Christian's a person who's seeking to be made holy every single day. He says, it's for those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's those who disobey the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. So your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. That's not just say, honor your father and mother if they're nice. When they're nice to you. When they say things that are pleasing to you. No, honor your father and mother, period. Of course, the days we land the long, the land long, you know, the Lord your God has given you. Yeah, that's speaking of the land, the holy land. But it's, I think it has implications for today. It's to how our lives might go. 
mean, we can, we talk to our kids about this. You can go ahead and just disobey and just hate our guts and we'll see how life goes for you. I mean, God doesn't, God takes that very, very seriously. That's why it's the fifth commandment, right? And he, he dwells on that or uh, touches on that here. It's for murderers, those who disobey commandment number six. You shall not kill, you shall not murder. Remember what Jesus said about murder in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, very famously, he said, you've heard it said of those, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So as you know, I love to say it's not just I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Don't do that. It's not just that kind of murdering. It's saying things, murders things about your brother, your sister. It's slaying them with your mouths. We don't just murder with, our, with a firearm or with our fists. We murder with our mouths, and we do this every day. Again, I, I could have written, <laughs> I thought I'd have written 10 books on this. I wrote one. I mostly wrote it for me because it's such a struggle. He it says it's for the sexually immoral, the law is, the men who practice homosexuality. All sexual sin. Homosexuality, this is not popular today. We know that. It's almost a cliche to say that in our circles, but it's very clearly condemned here. No question about it. A breaking of God's law. And so is all sexual sin, adultery, fornication, all these things. It's a breaking of God's law, breaking of commandment number seven. I think adultery, yes, you should not commit adultery, but also all sexual sin. It's not saying adultery is forbidden, homosexuality is okay. No, 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 no. I think it encompasses applicationally all sexual sin. It's for enslavers, kidnappers, I mean those who are disobedient to commandment number eight. You should not steal. It's stealing men, yes. Yes, is chattel slavery, would that be fall into this category? I believe it would. Praise God, we don't do that anymore here in New America. We did it one time, but I think this, this, this is forbidden. Kidnapping of any kind. It's for liars and disobedience commandment none. You shall not covet. When you want something, God has not been pleased to give you to a degree you fantasize about getting it. Maybe you even take it. You've broken the law of God. It's like that one Andrew Griffith episode, Opie, the whole thing is Opie, he wants to win the 50-yard dash and take on the medal more than anything in the world. And the whole thing is about him dreaming about doing it. Of course, he doesn't do it and he learns a life lesson. But we do that, don't we? We dream, we fantasize about being wealthy or just being king for a day. I think I fantasize about that, being president for a day. Boy, I'd like that, wouldn't you? We'd fix this country, wouldn't we? Uh, I don't know if we would or not. We're sinners, right? The law is for perjurers, disobedience to commandment number 10. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor, intentionally lying in a court of law after taking an oath to tell the truth, which affects the person who's been accused of committing a crime. That's forbidden, but bearing false witness against anybody, not in court, <laughs> is forbidden. When we misrepresent somebody intentionally, that is breaking the 10th commandment. That is perjuring ourselves. We do this. We love to, you know, love it when people are down, don't we? Don Henley's right. We love dirty laundry. We love it. We love to kick people when we think they're down and we think we've heard something about them. We love to spread it. And it may be false. And when it's false, I mean, it's wrong to spread it anyway, but it's, it's breaking the 10th commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We do this all the time on social media. Twitter's just, it's mostly, I think, breaking the 10th commandment about making assumptions and putting it out there. And man, oh man, are we going to give an account for that someday? before God as evangelicals, reformed evangelicals. We really, 
present ourselves. It gives an ugly, ugly testimony before the Lord with that, don't we? Boy, we do. So, are we terrible, wretched sinners? Well, the Apostle Paul was. He goes on to say in verses 12 to 17, he calls himself the chief among sinners. He said, I was the worst. He said, but God saved me as, a, as an illustration of the words, an example of that the worst could be saved. The news is good. The law says, do, do, right? It says, you do it. But the grace comes in and says, done. It, it, it says, there is grace. If you feel like the worst among sinners this morning, after reading this, so do I. And we should, and that's good because it drives us to Christ. And he says, Paul says, I was the foremost among sinners, and as uh, an example, he saved me as an example that God can even save the foremost of sinners. You see his testimony, verses 12 to 17. I won't read that. You can read it read this afternoon. Meditate on it. And he says here that sinful living is contrary to sound doctrine. We love doctrine in this church. We love theology. But sinful living, he says, is contrary to sound theologies, which means sound doctrine ought to lead to sound living. If it's just speculation and we're just, we just like to fill our heads with this, then we really don't understand our doctrine accurately. Teaching. Sound teaching. That's what doctrine is. Preserves and promotes spiritual health. Unlike false doctrine, which destroys spiritual vitality and spreads infection like gangrene, like cancer. Gangrene's an old, King James, I think it says that, or cancer. Gangrene is a condition that occurs when body tissue dies. It's caused by a loss of blood supply to an underlying um, illness, injury, or infection in World War II. My dad talked about how many, my dad fought in the Battle of the Bulge, and he talked about how many, how many men lost toes and fingers, digits, to frostbite. Had to be amputated, sometimes right there in the foxhole. And that's what sin does. It's gangrene. It spreads, doesn't it? We have to, boy, it kills us. We have to cut it off. So the law is for the lost and for the found. The law is for sinners. Finally, the law of God is, for, is vital for understanding the gospel. Verse 11, he says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. There it is with which I've been entrusted. Paul's been entrusted to preach and proclaim the gospel. And so, he's saying the law of God is vital for understanding the gospel. Because the gospel is the standard, right? Because the law is behind it. Because it's been fulfilled in Christ. I mean, the good news of the gospel, which what God has done and accomplished our salvation through the death and resurrection of Christ, is the scale upon which we weigh our doctrines and our use of the law. Does it drive people to the gospel? Or is it just some kind of ladder we're trying to prop up to make our way into heaven, to climb up into heaven? I think that's the question. I mean, we judge the soundness of how we see the law on how it affects our gospel. Does law replace the gospel in our theology? Are we saved by keeping rules? Almost unwittingly does it do that? We don't mean for it to, but it does. Do we just drop the law and say, we're gospel people. We don't need the law. That's passe. It's all passed off the scene, brother. It's not for today. If we say that, either one of those things, then we will never understand what Christ has done. Not fully. That's why I'm, I'm a big-time advocate for preaching both law and gospel. The Puritan said, break him with the law, heal him with the gospel. That's right. I think the Bible does that. Man, that's faithful. Faithfulness. I mean, here's what I mean. The law as given to Moses comes af after the good news of deliverance. 
He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. It comes after deliverance. They're expected to keep the law after they've been delivered. Of course, the Exodus is a paradigm for the salvation of the whole Bible, isn't it? I am the Lord your God. This is preamble. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 4. You who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that's who I am, out of the house of slavery. I rescued you and therefore you shall have no other gods before me. So the law is never a means of salvation. It comes after deliverance in terms of the application to our lives, but it still applies. I mean, salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. Big difference. Not the reward, but the reason. Jesus doesn't say, if you keep obeying my commandments, I will love you. No, he first washes the feet of his disciples, as we'll see here in a few weeks, months, in John 13. And then he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I've washed your feet, and now you have a part of me. Peter said, no, no, I'm going to wash. You don't want to wash my feet. He said, well, then I, you have no part of me unless I wash your feet. So grace comes first, and then we're able to keep the commandments and love, show our love for Christ that way. I mean, all of our doing is only because of what has first been done for us and in us. He has washed us clean. He's changed our hearts. And now we're able by the Spirit who lives inside us, the Spirit of God, to live for the glory of God. So this is why we don't throw away the law in our, you know, sort of evangelical circles today. The law says do, but grace comes in first and says done. And this is why the Pharisees are going to struggle so mightily with the teaching of Jesus. They can't imagine grace. They're going to want to kill him, and then they're going to they're oppose him, and then they're going to want to kill him, then they're going to plan to kill him, and then they're going to kill him. They misunderstand the law. So God's law is a map. It's a muzzle. It's a mirror. Jesus kept the law. Jesus paid it all. Because we can't. We don't have to and we can't. The law left the Pharisees and their disciples, and I said this last week, but absolutely miserable because they viewed it as a vehicle to glory, a means of salvation. As we saw last week, we'll see it in the upcoming weeks. They used it unlawfully as a means of judging the heart condition of others mainly. And the result was a shrunken, joyless, bitter existence. Sadly, many Christians today follow their lead. Boy, you see people in churches and these churches that preach the law. And man, the people there are miserable. They're in bondage, aren't they? I have been there. Charles Spurgeon once said, The 11th commandment must have been, Thou shalt wear a long face on Sunday. That's true, isn't it? We should leave here with joy because this law has pointed us to Christ. But we have Christ. And you're free from its guilt and its condemnation. But now, and now it's a guide to show you exactly how you are to live for the Lord. And he has equipped you. What he has demanded, he has given to you. So we need not misinterpret scripture and place the grace of God with legalism. And live out of an enslaving religion of the Pharisees and not the liberating grace of Christ. Rightly understood, the law of God is good. Unmasking our self-righteousness and exposing our depravity. Driving us to him. It sends us running for cover in the righteousness of Christ, one at Calvary through his selfless love. And it liberates us to rest in him. And we can delight in praying what Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me, 
All who are weary and heavy laden, come, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. May he give us grace to live every moment of our lives out of that gospel reality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the law. I pray we would appropriate it in our lives lawfully. And Lord, you give us great joy in studying it and applying it. You give us the power and the grace through your spirit to apply it. And if we have presumed upon your grace and we're relying on something else to save us besides the grace of Christ, grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, then I pray you'd make that clear to us today and grant us to draw near to Christ and his righteousness. Father, we love you and thank you for loving us. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.